podcast one production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. Well, Georgia Wilson is a rising star of the hockey ruse. She was the self-confessed hockey girl at school and dedicated her childhood and teen years to becoming the best athlete that she could be. But everything she worked so hard for began to spiral out of control as she struggled with challenges at home and in her personal life. An eating disorder controlled Georgia's life for a long time and really threatened her career and that goal of becoming a hockey roo. At the same time, she was recovering from a devastating ACL injury, which threatened her game as well. Georgia has this incredible courage to use her sporting profile and platform to share her story and inspire others. In this episode, we talk about mental health and eating disorders. If this episode brings up any issues for you and you want to speak to someone about it, you can reach Lifeline on 131114 or the Butterfly Foundation on 1800 334673. Georgia fell in love with hockey as a kid growing up outside of Perth. I grew up in the hills of Mundaring and there were only three sports available. So there was field hockey, netball, soccer. Mm -hmm. And I was around four years old when I was enrolled. And from there, I just sort of fell in love with the game. That's so young to have a hockey stick (laughs) giving to a four-year-old as well. (laughs) Yeah, I think that I was um, a little bit older before I realised that it was something that I wanted to do. But uh, it was just really the sport that was available a few minutes down the road. And that's where I went on the weekend. Did you play any of those other sports, as soccer or, or netball? No, I didn't. Just hockey for Just you? Just hockey. <laughs> You're right. And what was it about hockey that you loved so much from that early age? I have always been a very, very active young person. And, and as a child, I was probably on the border of being almost ADHD. <laughs> and so something where I could, yeah, you know, physically um, get a workout, but also really be involved in a team and, and competitive sport was probably what won me over. Were you good at it right from the beginning? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no four-year-old's very good at it. There's, <laughs> there's not much structure or skill. But as I got older, I, I worked a lot harder and unfortunately that paid off. When did you realise that, oh, hang on, I am good at this and I, I, I could go far with this? I had actually moved down from uh, my local club, which was Guildford, and at the time they had only had a a mixed, so boys and girls team. And then when I was around 12 years old, I moved down to um, Vic Park, which had like a single girls team. And I remember my dad taking me down to the trials and I was really unsure whether I was even going to make the the top grade team. And afterwards, the, one of the selectors who was the coaches pulled my dad aside and he said, I think we have a special one here. And yeah. um, he was actually a, a silver Olympic dual medalist. So that was the first time that I really thought. The coach or your dad? The coach. Oh, no, right. I, didn't have a, <laughs> I didn't have a family uh, who has any history of sport. Mm-hmm. But for the coach to say that, that was probably the first time where I thought, oh, like maybe I could do this. So it lit a spark in you as well. Yeah, it, yeah. it certainly did. Um, what about for the hockey roos? Did you look up to some of the senior players or who was someone that you you um, you idolised growing up? I really loved Casey Easton. Hi, cool. Yeah, yep. from the hockey roos team and also... She's down Wollongong Way. Yeah, she yep. is. Yeah, a Sydney girl. And I really loved Jamie Dwyer as well. And I think any girl or boy <laughs> idolised Jamie and he was really uh, at the pinnacle of sport at the time that I was growing up. Were you 
hockey obsessed growing up. I always remember yeah. hockey girls when I was <laughs> at school and I was always into sport, but um, hockey was the one sport that I never got into. But I remember all the hockey girls at school, they were just obsessed with it. Were you an obsessed hockey girl as well? At my school in primary or high school, it wasn't actually offered as a as a sport. So at my school, unlike a lot of other private girl schools in Perth, we didn't have to do compulsory sports. So it wasn't one of those um, activities where I had to go and do in the afternoon. So not many girls played it, but I definitely was the hockey girl and I had a hockey shrine in my bedroom. And, <laughs> and I remember, I think it was my 16th birthday, all of my friends came in there and I had all of these trophies and medals and they turned all of them around and flipped them upside down. And, <laughs> and so when I walked in, all of my like posters were back to front and, <laughs> and trophies were in reverse and they thought it was very funny, but not so amusing for me. So your bedroom was a hockey shrine. Yes. Yeah, cool. Yes. Very cool. <laughs> well, let's talk about when you were 16. You talked about it just then. And hockey was, you say, a huge part of your identity. But that all, all changed when you turned 16. Tell us what happened, especially with, with your mum. I had always grown up with sort of the perfect childhood and I'd never been spoiled because I have three sisters, but I had always been really looked after and provided for by my parents. And when I was in year 11, I remember one afternoon and because I lived about an hour and a half by public transport from school and my mum and dad came to pick me up and I was like, this is the best day ever because mm. I never got to to get really a lift home only on special occasions. And <laughs> I remember that as soon as I got in the car, that something was wrong. It's just mm. that sinking feeling in your stomach when you know that something isn't right. And we drove a little down the street and, and then my dad pulled over in the car and my my mum turned around and, and he was looking at me and he said, I'm, I'm so sorry, but your mum has breast cancer. And I didn't really understand at the time mm. what it meant, but she ended up having to go through chemotherapy treatment and radiation and I was very young at the time but I remember all of her you know her hair falling out and her eyelashes and she's getting these eye infections because um, obviously mm. the the eyelashes act as a protective barrier mm. and mm. and I just remember feeling very helpless at a at that age because I couldn't really assist her in the way that I would have wanted what effect did that then have on you and your hockey? My mom has always put her kids first, which is something that yeah. I've started to appreciate as I've got older and she's always sacrificed her own dreams and ambitions for ours. And she would still make sure that I was taken to training, whether it meant mm. that she got up and, and drove me there and, and then slept in the car or whether it meant organising a, a family friend to take me or me staying at someone else's house so I could could get there. So she really made sure that my sporting dreams were still a priority at the time, which was so selfless of her. But it took a really big toll on the family and around three weeks after her treatment finished, my, my parents um, got divorced and that then mm. presented a whole nother... Mm. Um, side effect, which which was probably more impactful and, and devastating on me than um, mum's um, original diagnosis. Take me there. Why was that? I just had always had this idea that my parents were going to love each other forever. Mm. And 
yeah, it was a very bitter, very bitter divorce and mm. I don't see my dad anymore. But I'm working on trying to, I guess, forgive him and, and really make sure that it doesn't, it isn't carried on me as and burdens me as I go through my life. But I, um, it's been now r- around seven or eight years, but it, the divorce itself took four to five years to settle and mm. it settled in court. As a child, I would not w- wish it upon my enemy. Mm. And I understand that parents, sometimes it's best if they stop loving each other and they want to pursue a life outside of that but I also think that when you have children involved they need to be mm. the ones protected and the ones looked after. That must have been because up until then you're the hockey girl it's all going well you're yeah. talented getting into all these teams your parents are together everyone's healthy and then in the space of not very long at all when you turn 16 that all completely changed it would would rock your world. You're really close with your mum still? Yes, I am. I am very stubborn. And so <laughs> I just moved out of home only around two weeks ago and uh, I was starting to, yeah, not really respect her as much as I should have been mm. in, in a closed space. So I decided if that's best for our relationship if I did move out. Mm. And that was a decision that she fully accepted and supported. And she is really the the rock of my entire family and to have raised four girls, four very successful girls um, Mm. by herself and with no real financial support from my father for the last seven years is a real testament to to what she's achieved. Um, Was there a time there where you were afraid that you might lose her during the breast cancer battle? She never, ever spoke about giving up and she doesn't give up. And so I knew that she wouldn't be the one to accept defeat. Mm. If something was to um, seriously have happened to her, then I knew that it would have been because it was the, the cancer, it wouldn't have been through her own choice of um, of giving up. But not, not once in my mind did I think that it was going to, yeah, beat my mum. You talk about the financial burden and, and her having to raise four of you. Yes. You took on some of the responsibility of trying to ease things with her family as well. You took on numerous jobs as well. Can you tell me a little bit more about those? Playing a sport involves a lot of early financial commitment and I often had to... At an elite level especially. At at an elite level. Whilst you're at an elite level that I'm at now, everything's Mm. fully funded in terms of my trip to Sydney right now, that's paid for Mm. and that's a a luxury. But whilst you're trying to go up the ranks, that isn't something that is covered. Mm. And so it's a huge financial burden on families and an interstate trip where you can be then identified costs around two and a half to three thousand dollars. And if you're going on two or three of those a year if you're going on two trips and you have two other sisters who are also trying to to do it as well Mm. it's a huge ask on families and so I would try and work as much as possible my first job was a as a waitress at a local pizza restaurant and yeah I I worked there for about a year Mm. but I would try and yeah tutor I would sell chocolates at school my sister would help me sell chocolates to 
to the older girls in year 12 who would always be, you know, craving something sweet whilst they were going through their exams. But <laughs> any opportunity, you know, my mum would try and go. I remember my mum's friend owned a paint shop and she would go in there weekly and, and give her Cadbury chocolates to sell just so we could try and scrape together as much money as we mm. could to keep my dream alive. While still trying to play hockey. Was it high on your priorities even then with everything that you were going through? There was a time where I tipped the scale most definitely mm. because I was so worried about trying to pay my mm. rent whilst living at uni and trying to, yeah, save up for trips. Mm. But it taught me the value of saving mm. and how making those short-term sacrifices actually allows you a longer-term reward and and yeah, working towards a goal that you'd like to achieve. Yeah. With everything that was going on with your mum's cancer and then um, having to work all those jobs and then the divorce, was that a bit of a trigger for your own battle and your own eating disorders? I've always been obsessed with food. Like I absolutely love food. Still to this day I love food. But it became more about trying to gain control in an environment that was uncontrolled and I couldn't control what the movements of my father was. I couldn't control, you know, the wellness of my mum. And what I turned to was was food. Mm. And because as an athlete, I probably have always been a perfectionist as well. Mm. And, and I talk about it being a double-edged sword and nothing ever being good enough which drives your performance, but it also means that you're never really satisfied. And, and mm. so I was always looking for ways to improve and I thought, oh, by cutting out pasta, that's going to help me be a better athlete. By cutting out bread, that's going to help me be mm. a better athlete. And then over time, all of these food rules and restrictions came into place and, and it was a period of years before I even realised that they were extremely detrimental to not only my performance but also my mental well-being. How obsessive did you then become? I probably hit rock bottom around 20 to 21 mm -hmm. and I remember I lived with a family in Cottesloe at the time and they were fantastic. They took me in as one of their daughters so they have four, mm -hmm. four girls and I can never thank them enough for the support that they provided whilst my own family was going through their divorce mm. and I had to live closer to training and they really, really provided a, a family um, support. And I would wake up in the morning and I would have one egg and half a tomato and maybe a few spears of asparagus mm. and I would just cook it in the microwave and then I would have for lunch like a tiny piece of grilled chicken with a few vegetables and mm. then for dinner again it would be like lean meat with vegetables maybe a, a snack in the afternoon mm. and then around 8 p.m at night I just became this possessed demon who would eat anything and everything in sight whether that be peanut butter from the jar whether that be dark cooking chocolate which tastes disgusting mm. um I would bake stuff if I didn't have anything sweet on hand I would you know eat ice cream from the tub and it was just out of control and mm. every single night this this behavior was happening and I'd drag myself off to bed feeling like I was going to burst like that feeling after you go to a buffet mm. and you have eaten so much food and you just feel so much regret and guilt mm. and then the next day I would wake up and there'd be about five or ten seconds where I would 
then remember what I'd done the previous night mm. and think, oh, no, I've done it again. And then that whole period of restriction mm. and starvation would start. But it was only those binges at night that were actually getting me enough calories to sustain what I needed to to continue my sport. With the workload that you were doing? Yes. With the Australian hockey squad and yeah. and with hockey? It's a very restrictive diet, but was that like your control, control, but then at night time you just got out of out of control? How long did that last? Probably between three to four years. Wow, okay. And, and sometimes With I would... the night binges. And, yeah, so wow. sometimes at night it would be better. Like sometimes I would only have a little bit or, you know, I, I would have a few nights where I would have dessert only every second night, but I didn't have bread or pasta for a period of about two years Mm. and that's sad like that is so sad I love my pasta (laughs) now anyway but uh, yeah it it was such a sad time did you know that it was wrong like at what point did you realize that this is not healthy and I need help the thing was with my eating disorder so a binge eating disorder was that my weight really never changed but there was a period of time where I I didn't deliberately try and lose weight, but I lost a large period of weight mm. over a very short period of time. And I remember everyone coming up to me when I returned to training saying, well, like you've lost so much weight. And my physiologist pulled me aside and he said, I need you to get on the scales. And it turned out that I lost about six or seven kilos in around three and a half weeks, which is a huge wow. loss. Yeah. And for your frame as well. Yes. So that would have what brought you down to to about 51 kilos. Yeah, right. And in my head I thought great. Mm. People are noticing like that's great. Mm. And I stopped getting my period. So yeah. it's called I don't know how if this is how you pronounce it but amenorrhea, I think mm-hmm. it's called. And the problem with that happens with a lot of eating disorders. Yes. And at the time I, I I didn't notice until it got about three months in and I still hadn't got my period and I hadn't been sexually active. And I thought, oh, this is great. Like Mm. I'm not getting my period. And like, I love, like, this is awesome. And then I didn't understand that what that means is that you don't, you're not actually supplying your body with enough nutrients Mm. that you, you risk getting osteoporosis, you risk, you know, Mm. stress fractures, um, because your your bones become so much more brittle, um, brittle. Mm. and I I was probably twenty one when I went away. I went away to Sri Lanka by myself, and I loved to to holiday, holiday? by myself. Yeah, and I could not eat half of the food that was put in front of me. Your mind wouldn't let you. My mind wouldn't let me. I couldn't touch rice. I couldn't touch bread. I would want it and I would look it up on the menus in advance and I just I just couldn't touch it. I couldn't eat a carrot. I would eat half a carrot and then put the rest back. I would Why? eat half an apple because in my in my head I I knew the food count and calorie count of every single food. And I can still and You were constantly adding them up. Yes, and I was using a, a calorie app and the thing about going on holiday is that often you lose that control and you're not preparing your own meal, mm. so you can't weigh anything. You don't know the exact calorie count, and that creates a lot of fear mm. and anxiety. And for me, I just thought I'm I'm really out of control. And previously, I'd reached out to someone about eight or nine months earlier, mm. and I I'm part of this Facebook group called Help a Sister Out, and 
there's about I think maybe half a million women on there Mm. and they provide advice for women in Perth. So if, for example, if you want to find the best hairdresser to go to or if you're looking for a new walk to do down by the river, they mm-hmm. girls can go on there and add their own um, recommendations and, and it's a really great platform for women to share um, knowledge. And I remember a girl putting up a post about having a binge eating disorder and she described every single behaviour that I was undertaking each Mm. night and I contacted her and I reached out and I said I think that I'm suffering with a binge eating disorder Mm. do you know like where I could get help and she suggested somewhere but it wasn't until eight or nine months later that I realized just how helpless I felt because I wasn't losing weight I was still performing at a really high level Mm. and I was still, you know, enjoying those foods very late at night, but the next day was getting guilt and, again, mm. those were the only foods that were, were helping me get through. When people were saying, oh, you've lost weight or you look good, was that then almost validating your behaviour in some way? Oh, for sure. It was yeah. reassurance. Yeah. Like, I can keep going like this. I was still having all my ice cream at night. I was still, you know, having chocolate and I thought, oh, this is awesome. I can still look like this and have a six-pack and... And not have a period, and you drained like, yes, completely drained. Yeah, very irritated. You're just not. You're just not there. Mm, you're just yeah. really like when you haven't eaten for a long period of time, you have trouble mentally focusing. You can't mm. engage with like relationships and and fully engage with the conversation that's happening. And the whole time, all you're thinking about is food. Wow. Yet you're not allowing yourself to eat. When you were playing hockey, did you think about food? Yes, and. Some days I remember waking up for training when I was in WACE, which Mm -hmm. is the Western Australian Institute of Sports. So before you go into the national program, you'll Mm -hmm. often be selected in your own institute Mm -hmm. to allow you to sort of adapt and cope with the demands of a high-performance training environment. And some days I would wake up and I wouldn't allow myself to eat and I'll go to training and train for two hours and just be thinking during the breaks, I'm so hungry and Mm -hmm. I would hear my stomach rumble and again, it was just, no, you get your food after training. Like, control. That's, that's the control and that's mm. your reward that you'll get. And I still suffer now, but I have seen an uh, eating disorder psychologist. Mm-hmm. I started seeing her in January 2018, just before I did my ACL mm. injury, which again was a really difficult time when I had tr- tried to get a grasp on an eating disorder when you can't then exercise. Mm. But- there mm. are a number of different ways that I was trying to minimise the effect of food on me. So I would often go for extra walks. I would often, you know, do do extra exercise. When I was younger, mm. I always had exercised after, you know, after Christmas or on the morning of Christmas, I'd make sure that I'd go for a run right. just so that you could, you know, have a little bit of you peace of mind. You had an extra mind. bit of chocolate where you're like, okay, well now I've got to go for a run to make that up. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Did anyone notice? Was anyone else aware that this was happening? Oh, completely. Yeah. My mum was very, very aware and she always had tried to say, you know, I think you should eat the family meal because my mum would make a curry and rice and I would have grilled chicken with broccoli Mm. and brown rice. I wouldn't eat white rice. Mm. And that's not healthy. Yeah. If a family, we had fish and chips, I would always ask for grilled fish and salad. I would never, ever, ever have fish and chips. So Mm. there was a lot of 
noticeable food changes that I was making at home Mm. and she saw a lot of them firsthand. But unless somebody wants to get help themselves, they're never going to to accept the help Mm. that's offered to them. Did some people try to get you help early on? Did you listen to them or? My nutritionist at WACE recognised it as well Mm. a lot earlier. And again, I just completely denied Mm. anything that they were saying Mm. um, for, yeah, probably a good two or three years. What's your relationship with food like now? You said you still have to keep checks on yourself and... I still struggle with it and mm. I think I'm always going to struggle with it, but it's so much less exhausting mm. and it's so much more enjoyable. And an example is if I just talk about today, I go down to breakfast, I haven't forecasted what I'm going to have for breakfast, I haven't pre-planned what I'm going to have. I go down there and I look and I think, oh, today I feel like toast with scrambled eggs. Mm. And one of the challenges that I still face is that when we go on tour, we eat at a buffet. Mm-hmm. And so that is a setting where I still struggle. For the binge? Um, for the binge because yeah. there is like an abundance of food and I always think this is going to be my last meal. Like I have to eat everything in sight. Cheese yeah. boards are the same. Those grazing platters are, mm-hmm. are really difficult for me. And I'll go down there and I'll just have a look first what I'd like to to have. And I really do have a set plan and action in my head, which I've worked through with my ED psychologist. And then I'll choose what I want and I sit down and I have it. And then after training, I'll have something to eat. And then for lunch, I'll go and choose what is available or what I feel like. Mm. And then tonight I'm going out with a friend for dinner. I don't know which restaurant I'm going to yet. I don't know what menu is there. I don't know what I'm going to order. But before all of the meals for the entire week would have been pre-planned. Or if you're going out to dinner, did you always research beforehand? Oh, always. And then count calories? and Always. And if yeah. I didn't have any control over that, I would simply come up with an excuse to yep. say, sorry, I can't go tonight. Or I would say, oh, I'm not feeling well. And so I wouldn't eat there. Mm. And I'll go home and then eat what I could make myself knowing what the calories were in it. And control. Mm-hmm. What was it then like to watch your younger sister, Mackenzie, go through her own battle with food? It was heartbreaking. I really, really struggled during that time seeing her. And Mackenzie was oh, 15 at the time and she's become a lot more open about it, which is amazing. And she's so amazing to have uh, recovered in such a quick period of time. But she initially had really bad acne mm-hmm. And she struggled with her self-appearance on that. And so she initially cut out sugar Mm -hmm. to try and help her skin. So we supported her with that decision. And then it started cutting out other food groups. Mm. And then she started losing weight. And she says how she got a lot of pleasure from getting on the scales and seeing the numbers go down. Mm. So she was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, Mm -hmm. which is different to, to a binge eating disorder. So she was completely starving herself. And the really difficult thing with that is that the brain is being starved of nutrients, which means that you have a much higher risk of being affected to other mental health uh, disorders Mm. like depression, um, you know, suicide um, risk and also anxiety as well. And she developed chronic anxiety around food. You've been very open 
you know, about her struggle and your own struggle. Why is that? Is it, is it so that there are other families who are going through what you're going, what you've been through? Yes. Can this understand? Is, this is a huge issue that mm. is facing so many young girls and so many families and an issue that is only going to get so much worse because of the use of social media, because of the ease of just downloading a calorie counting app mm. and seeing girls have news feeds and, you know, Instagram feeds that are just inundated with photoshopped and altered images of something that they should look like. Mm. And I was looking over Mackenzie's shoulder one day and it was just the calorie counts of foods that was coming up on her Instagram and that, and mm. that's to do with the app. It's to do with the algorithm that wants to try and keep you on the app for as long as possible and mm. that's how they, you know, make all their money. Um, but for young girls it is terrible and as soon as we spoke out about it and my mum particularly, a lot of other families reached out and said, oh, I actually have a daughter who suffered with it or I've, you know, I know a family mm. friend who is suffering with it currently and when I did speak publicly about it, my my family was, I was shunned almost mm. Because it, it is Mackenzie's um, Mackenzie's battle mm. to talk out about it, and and I have probably sometimes been a little bit um, shy in talking about my own struggle with food and focused mm. on hers. But whether it's a binge eating disorder, anorexia, bulimia, so many girls are going through it. Mm. And obsessed with food and, and what it does. Obsessed with food. What's your What's your message then to families who are going through something similar, like a binge eating disorder? or um, anorexia or bulimia and they're seeing a family member like yourself and like Mackenzie go through that. What's your message to them? You need to support them to get help. I didn't get help for a very long time because I felt that I wasn't sick enough and because I didn't think that I was going to be able to afford it. And what the government has recently introduced is that – people who are suffering can actually get uh, access to an eating disorder psych covered. Mm. And so I think it's around one or two sessions every two weeks Mm -hmm. for an entire year. And that is a huge, huge step in the right direction Mm. because to put it in perspective, seeing uh, an hour with an eating eating psych costs around, I think I was paying about $235 for Mm. the hour. And I have been so fortunate with the support of Hockey Australia that they have helped cover mm. the gap um, that my health insurance then then covered. But I didn't know that I would be able to have their support. Mm. But for me, thinking that I need to financially pay that, that's probably why I didn't get help. Mm. So families who are in the same financial position as mine was know that there is now help available and that it's not going to come at a cost that you can't afford. Mm. You um you also said a, for you personally meditation was something that you um you turned to you even went to a meditation camp in Bali and where you couldn't speak for three days what is it about meditation that that worked for you I suffer with a lot of performance anxiety and I actually returned from a, a is that camp. normal for athletes so yes I feel a lot of athletes and say a lot of similar. perfectionist athletes yep. as well and it's. Does it mean you get so nervous before a it's game? because we or? care so much that yeah. we think about the consequences and the effects of performing poorly. 
but it is something that I started working on when I was about 20 mm-hmm. and I only started with five minutes a day and I would just sit there and try and you know close my eyes and focus on my breathing and then over time that duration that I did it for gradually increased and I probably took it to the next level so I yeah went to a meditation retreat in Bali and then I went to a um, meditation retreat in Perth so I drove myself down there was down near Serpentine Falls which is about two and a half hours Mm -hmm. away and it was three days of complete silence and you meditate from like 5 a.m to 10 p.m at night does that mean like 24 hours a day you're not talking even to the person next to you so you introduce yourself at the very start so you sit down at a table and you meet a person and then you'll stay at that same position for breakfast, lunch and dinner over the next three days. And the sole purpose of that is so that you don't cause any more conflict or you may say something that another person finds quite harmful and that you can really work on resolving that personal and internal conflict that you have yourself. But it was, although it sounds very strange and creepy, it was it was really peaceful and you would just smile at someone or you would nod when you walked past and it was a really good time. But I did end up getting bone bruising on my bum <laughs> from sitting down for so long and I went back to waste and I said to my coach, like, I think I've done something really bad several days later and then I went to the physio and he said, have you been sitting down for a long period of time? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I have. And then it was just bone bruising on my tailbone. But I probably wouldn't suggest doing wow. that until wow. you have done a lot of meditation. But all I simply do now is I, I lie down and mm. I use an app called Insight Timer and I just lie on the ground with a pillow and a blanket and I just put on, like at the moment I'm doing a yoga nidra one, which is where you become a bit more aware of yourself mm. and what you're feeling. So you'll just work through the body from your feet up towards your head and it's just a really great time to relax and just not think about any of those you know, tasks or demands that you have to do and just give yourself a little bit of time to to savour the moment. Does meditation, did that help you fight your way back into the Australian squad? Because you obviously had 14 months off with an ACL injury, which yes. you said during the time where your eating was like you had to control everything and you're not exercising during that time. It's really, ACL is just such a cruel injury. Was it, and then you had to miss out on Commonwealth Games as well and have to watch your team do that. Was that meditation? Was that when you started doing it? Was that a way for you to fight, get healthy in the head to fight your way back? Or how did you fight your way back into the Australian squad? I was probably so depressed for the first three or four months that I didn't have the motivation to do anything, let alone even meditate. Of the injury? With the injury. And I called on a lot of my close family and friends to help support me during that time. And that was really the first time where I've called on people. Like normally I've always thought I can just do it by myself. Mm. But I just felt like it was the the problem was beyond me that I that Mm. I had to call out for help. And they came to my, you know, side straight away. But I began yeah, getting into more of a regular routine with it. Mm. And I do think that helped, but it just allows my anxiety levels to go down and and remind myself that I am in control and playing sport is a choice and a, mm. and a choice that I consciously make. And that if I go out there and perform terribly, that I'm still worthy as a person because for so long I defined my entire worth through my performance as an athlete on the mm. field. 
and some yeah, athletes still girl. do that, but it is it is really putting you out there for destruction and mm. and harm. So now you don't. You're Georgia Wilson. I'm yeah, I am Georgia Wilson who loves to cook and loves to meditate and and still loves to go out for ice cream and and loves to work out, but I think I have lo- a lot more of a balance and and I have a really, really great family and um, we've managed to, to get through it together through a very difficult time together and, and um, we've all dealt with it in different ways. But, yeah, there is, a, there is calm after the storm. Um, you're now an ambassador for Zero to Hero, a youth mental health organisation and a, an ambassador for Lifeline through the AIS. They're really important to you, isn't it, to give back and help the younger generations deal with the kind of things that you've, mental health things that you've dealt with? Most definitely. And being involved with those two organisations allow me a platform to do that, especially with being a Lifeline community custodian. I have had a number of people and not only athletes, but, you know, the everyday person reach out and say thank you for, you know, sharing your story. Mm. And, and everyone has a story. But mm. it is about being open and being willing to share it and also know that there is support regardless of what the issue is and that no issue is too great or too small. Mm. And I am, I've am i only recently become willing to share my own uh, eating disorder struggles mm. and going to different schools in Perth, I, I really get a lot of value and personal fulfilment from that and after my first presentation, I had three girls come up to me and they said, two of them were crying and they said, I think I need help. Mm. And so I pointed them in the right direction and allowed them to take the first step, which is always the hardest. And another, fr- another girl came up to me and she said, I think my best friend has bulimia. Mm. But she told me that if I tell anyone that you know, it's going to ruin the friendship. And I, and I gave her that advice and how mm. the person that talked to her wasn't actually her friend. It, it was the, the eating disorder. Mm. And, and in the grand scheme of things, like her as a friend has to, has to do the right thing and get her the best support. And then finally I had a teacher reach out to me um, privately online and, and say, you've inspired me to go and get help uh, after wow. struggling with an eating disorder for several years. And I think a lot of girls can ask themselves a question about whether they need help is ask yourself whether you think that your life will improve in value if you get a grasp on what you're currently going through. Mm. And if that means going out more with friends because you want to be able to eat you know, pancakes on a Saturday morning, if it means not missing out time with family because you're too busy walking the dog because you had dessert last night, just ask yourself if you want your life to improve. Mm. And there is a support out there and you are readily able to access it. It's an incredible message, a really, really powerful message. And I'm sure your story is going to help a lot of young girls out there. There's one to finish off, one question that we ask all of the uh, elite sportswomen who come through here, what then would be your message to your 10-year-old self, the hockey girl, the girl who's like getting selected in all these teams, the girl who doesn't know the battles that are about to face her once she turns 16? What would you tell that 10-year-old self? That's funny because I often say whenever I hear that chatter or 
I call it the opponent in my mind, whether it's out in the field or whether I'm looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that last night. Mm. And I say to myself, don't listen to the opponent. But what my sports psych and I actually um, come up with is I say to myself, would you say that to your 10-year-old self? And it's funny because so often we are so critical, but when we are able to get some perspective and say, well, would you want yourself saying that to a 10-year-old? Mm. I wouldn't. Um, but it, it is to be kind, to be kind to yourself because the amount of, yeah, torture and guilt and, you know, regret that I've, I've probably put myself through is, is more than enough for a lifetime. So it is to, to be a little bit kinder to myself. Great message. Great story that will help a lot of girls. Georgia Wilson, thank you so much for sharing your story with On Her Game. My absolute pleasure. Before I go, if my conversation with Georgia brought up any issues for you and you want to talk to someone about it, you can reach Lifeline on 13114 or Australia's National Eating Disorder Support Service, the Butterfly Foundation, on 1800 4673. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the free Podcast One Australia app, or search On Her Game podcast.